Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 21, Joshua, chapters 18, 19, and 20. We're going to move rather rapidly to the next couple of chapters in Joshua's. What we get is another long list of towns and cities and boundaries that describe the territories of each of the tribes of Israel. Now, it had to be done this way with words because map making was only in its most primitive stages in this era. And by all accounts, the Hebrews did not yet engage in drawing maps on papyrus or animal hides. Now, however, it's, for us, it's a lot easier to see these tribal boundaries on a modern map all right, than to try and visually put together this uh, puzzle of a word picture that we have in Joshua 18 and 19. Even so, you know, a map can give us a very wrong impression um, of reality of those times if we don't grasp that while the overall boundaries that were assigned to each territory in fact there was only certain cities and villages within that territory that actually came under the control or use of a particular tribe to which the lot assigned it a more accurate map would actually look something like the measles or the chicken pox Right, little clusters of spots with vacant areas in between. The spots would represent the actual areas under Israeli control and the vacant areas either under enemy control or simply kind of a no man's land. Now another problem for us and frankly for the best biblical scholars is that many if not most of the places used to describe the territory aren't presently identifiable with any real certainty. Um, you know, as in the United States where no city or, or town has a patent on its own name, and thus anywhere from several to scores of other cities and towns bear exactly that same name, it was that, that way in Canaan. Okay, we're going to find several Bethels, for instance, we know of at least three Gilgals and several Kadeshes uh, and so on. Some of these places are pretty easy to discern. Others we have good hints as later names in different languages were obvious attempts to vocalize the Hebrew town name into another language, usually Aramaic or some Arabic dialect. And still others are completely lost to history. Right. Therefore, even our maps are but the best possible educated guesses and estimations from whatever the current highest level of scholarship might be. Now, we ended last week by finding out that the seat of government for Israel was moved from Gilgal, which was, at that time it was moved, not an assigned territory, right, to Shiloh. We say usually Shiloh. Right, in the newly assigned territory of Ephraim. And it was there that the wilderness tabernacle, or at least what remained of it, was erected. And the priesthood officiated over the sacrificial rituals. 
And it was there now at Shiloh that Joshua ruled and he was headquartered. Shiloh was going to remain the capital of the 12 tribes until the time of Eli, Eli, right? in the book of Samuel. All right? A period of somewhere around three centuries. Now, Rashi says that the sacred tent took a whole other form at Shiloh. That it had no roof and it had a stone floor put in it. Right? Further, that it doubled as both a sanctuary and housing for Joshua and mainly his predecessors. Thus, it was called by a whole number of different names during um, this three-century era. The tent, the house of the Lord, it was even called the tent of Joseph. Why the tent of Joseph? Because it was now in the territory of the tribes of Joseph. Now, I can't say for sure if he's necessarily correct. But with the tribes dispersed now all over the promised land, each mostly concerned with day-to-day life and their own tribal affairs and well-being, it's not very hard to imagine that the magnificent, one-time magnificent tent structure that took so much effort and so many people to construct it in the first place would now be somewhat neglected. Okay. By all accounts, when David finally got his hands on the Ark of the Covenant around 1000 BC, he housed it in a very common tent. Okay. Why don't we hear David simply order that the wilderness tabernacle be moved to his headquarters? Okay. Why don't we hear of great protests by the priests and the Levites about the greatest single sacred object in Israel's possession being moved around by a bunch of common Israelites and put into the possession of a Judean king instead of above the, the Levite high priest. Okay. Almost certainly it was because the wilderness tabernacle was a ramshackle by now. All right. The magnificent curtains and coverings would long ago have worn out and apparently were replaced by quick and easy coverings or not replaced at all. The priesthood was not functioning by David's day as it should. And with the advent now of the new office of king of Israel, the first being Saul and then David, priestly influence and authority had been greatly weakened. In fact, it should not take much imagination for us to see that with the establishment of a king over Israel it was going to take some time of wrestling for position between the priesthood and the royal office of king to kind of figure out some kind of acceptable governmental structure that divided up in the duties and all that authority in some kind of a whole new way uh, not that this was what God had intended or ordained for Israel but it, it's just simply what happens when mankind starts tinkering with God's plans to make them better or more than likely to fit our plans. And it's what happens also when we beseech the Lord to allow us to have our way. Which, you know what? He'll do sometimes. And which he did do 
in Israel's want of a king. And it didn't turn out all that well. Let's begin today by reading some more of Joshua 18. We're going to read from 11 to the end. Joshua chapter 18, 11 to the end of chapter 18. It's on page uh, 261 of the complete Jewish Bible. The lot for the tribe of the descendants of Benjamin came up, according to their families. And the border of their territory chosen by lot was between the descendants of Judah and the descendants of Joseph. On the north side, their border began at the Jordan, went up alongside Jericho on the north, continued up through the hills westward, and arrived at Beit Aven Desert. From there, the border passed on to Luz, to the south side of Luz, that's Bethel. Then the border went down to Atrot Adar by the hill on the south side of the lower Beit Haron. The border was delineated as turning at the western corner and heading southward from the hill located in front of Beit Haron on the south, and it ended at Kiryat Baal, that is Kiryat Yarim, Jerim we say today, a city belonging to the descendants of Judah. This was the west side. On the south, the border extended westward from the most distant part of the Kiryat Jarim, going out to the source of the uh, Neftoah Spring. Then the border went down to the farthest part of the hill located in front of the Ben Hinnom Valley, north of the Rephaim Valley, south of the, of the uh, Yavusi, the Jebusites, and continued down to Ein Rohel, where it was drawn to the north. Then it went on to Ein Shemesh, continued to Gliot, which is across from Ma'alei Adumim, went down to the stone of Bohan, the son of, Ru- of Reuben, passed alongside the Arabah, heading north, went down to the Arabah. Then the border passed alongside Bet Hoglah, heading north, and the border ended at the north bay of the Dead Sea, at the south end of the Jordan. This was their southern border. The Jordan was to be its border on the east side. This was the inheritance of the descendants of Benjamin, defined by its surrounding borders according to their families. The cities of the tribe of the descendants of Benjamin according to their families were Jericho, Beit Hoglah, Emek Kitsitsi, Beit Arabah, Samarayim, Beitel, Avim, Para, Ophrah, Kafar Hamona, Ofni, Geva, twelve cities together with their villages. Gibon, Ramah, Beirut, Mitzpah, Kephirah, Mozah, Rechem, Yirpiel, Tara'alah, uh, Selah, Aleph, Yavusi, that is Jerusalem, Givat and Kiryat, 14 cities together with their villages. This is the inheritance of the descendants of Benjamin according to their families, and now you see why a map is a whole lot better. <laughs> Now, the verses just preceding these told us that Joshua got fed up with waiting for the remaining seven tribes who had yet to inherit their land portion. And he said, to get on the stick, seven tribes, all right, accept it, finish conquering it. So he ordered, again, these are the verses just before the ones we read today. He ordered that each tribe put forth three men to represent it, a total of 21 men who would each go to the general area that had been determined by the lots that Moses drew for them some years earlier 
And then they were to describe, it says, that area. Basically, that means they were to reconnoiter it, record the existing cities and villages and major landmarks and all the geographical features in detail, and then bring all that back so that the leadership of Israel could make some decisions about properly fitting each of the seven tribes into a more precise amount of space um, according to its current population. Well, this was aided by Joshua and the high priest Eleazar going before the Lord using lots. Now, going before the Lord, that phrase, going before the Lord, means that something took place at the tabernacle. And we're going to see that phrase used in both the Old and the New Testaments. Certainly it applied in temple times as well. Now, notice how many times lots have been drawn by now. And how much elasticity there was to these territorial assignments depending on the most current conditions. And as we move along to the end of Joshua and then immediately on into the book of Judges, we're going to see that the territories of each tribe tended to expand, contract, move, even disappear. So all we can ever do... um, to understand, really, where a given territory for a given tribe lay was to take a snapshot in time. Because this was not a static thing. It changed. Now, after the foray of the 21 men, the lots were drawn. And the first lot that came out was for Benjamin. Now, note the phrase in verse 11 of chapter 18 that it was divided up according to their families. In other words, while we tend to think of these territories like the territory of Benjamin as just one monolithic hunk, that's not how it was thought of then. Rather, families, clans, were given cities and their associated villages and they existed in a generally recognized area that when added together could be roughly called the territory of Benjamin in this case. Now the area set aside for the clans of Benjamin lay between the area of Ephraim and the area of Judah. Kind of like a buffer zone. (laughs) Although it's not a very large area for Benjamin it is prestigious as it contained Jericho and Jebus Jebus of course would eventually be captured by David and at first be called the city of David and then later on Jerusalem by all rights Benjamin was the last born son of Jacob and he should have traditionally received the least status of them all but being the first one drawn of the, of the lots of the final seven tribes, and then given the position of having borders contiguous with both the Joseph tribes and the Judah tribes, uh, Judah tribe rather, indicated a lot higher status uh, than you might have expected. All right. now, this elevated status was thoroughly understood by all the tribes of Israel and it was going to play a very significant role in Israel's future. Well, the next tribal allotment went to Simeon 
And that's what we find in the opening verses of chapter 19. So let's read through this um, quickly. Going to get a lot more names here, so hang in there. The second lot came out for Shimon, Simeon, for the tribe of the descendants of Shimon according to their families. Their inheritance was inside the inheritance of the descendants of Judah. For their inheritance they had Beersheba, Sheva, Molada, Hatsar, Shual, Bala, Atzim, El Tolad, Betuel, um, Horma, Ziklag, Beit, Markovot, Hatsar, Suza, Beit, Lavaot, and uh, Sharuchen. Thirteen cities together with their villages. Ain, Rimon, Eter, and Ashan, four cities together with their villages, and all the villages surrounding these cities, as far as Baalat, Be'er, Ramah of the Negev. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Shimon, according to their families. The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken out of the allotment for the descendants of Judah. Because the portion given to the descendants of Judah was too much for them. So the descendants of Simeon had an inheritance inside the descendants of Judah. Now the third lot came up for the descendants of Zebulun according to their families. The border of their inheritance began at Sarid. Then their border went up westward to Mar'alah, extended to Dabashit, and on the, and on the Vadi fronting Yochneam. Also from Sarid, it turned towards the sunrise. To the east of the border of Kislot-Tavar, went down to Dovrat and up to Yafia. From there it passed eastward to Gat-Hefer, onto Eit Katsin, went out to Rimon, and reached to Neah. Then the border turned on the north side to Hanaton, ending in the uh, Yiftachel Valley. Also, Katat, Nahal, Shimron, Elah, and Bethlehem, twelve cities, together with their villages. This is the inheritance of the, village, of the descendants of Zebulun, according to their families, these cities with their villages. Now, the fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the descendants of Issachar, according to their families. Their, tor- tor- their territory included um, uh, Jezreel, Keslot, Shunem, Hafraim, Shion, Anachrat, Rabit, Kishion, Evet, Remet, Ein Ganim, Ein Hada, and Beit Patzetz. Right? Their territory extended to Tabor. Shacha uh, Zima and Beit Shemesh. And their territory ended at the Jordan. Sixteen cities together with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Issachar according to their families. The cities with their villages. Now the fifth lot came out for the tribe of the descendants of Asher according to their families. And their ter- territory included uh, Helkat, Hali, Betain, Akshaf, Alamelech, Ahmad, and Mishal. Extended to the Carmel on the west and to uh, Shechor, leave not. The border turned eastward to Beit Dagon, reached to Zebulun and to the Yiftachel Valley on north, then Beit Emech, and Ne'el went out to the Kabul on the left, then Avron, Rechov, Haman, Kana, and on to Greater Sidon. The border turned towards Ramah, the fortified city of Zor. Next, the border turned to Hosah, 
and it ended at the sea from Hebel to Achsiv. Also included were Uma, Afek, and Rehov, 20 cities together with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Asher, according to their families, these cities with their villages. The sixth lot came out for the descendants of Naphtali, for the descendants of Naphtali according to their families. Their border went from Helef and the oak in Zad Naim, and included Adami Nekev, and Yavnel went on to Lachum and ended at the Jordan. Westward, the border turned to Asnot Tabor, went out from there to Hukok, reaching to Zebulun on the south, Asher on the west, and Judah at the Jordan towards the east. The fortified cities were Sidim, Seir, Hamat, Rechat, Kinneret, Adamah, Ramah, Hatzor, Kadesh, Adrei, Ein Hatzor, Yiron, Migdal El Horim, Benat, Beit Shemesh, 19 cities together with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Naphtali, according to their families, the cities with their villages. The seventh lot came out for the tribe of the descendants of Dan, according to their families. The, uh, the territory of their inheritance included <coughs> Sorah, Eshtaol, Ir Shemesh, Shah Alabin, uh, Ayalon, Yitla, Ayalon, Timna, Ekron, Elke, Gibton, Baalat, Yehud, Benai Brach, Gat Rimon, Yarkon Springs, and Rachon with the border fronting Yafo. The territory of the descendants of Dan was too small for them. So the descendants of Dan went up and fought against Lashem captured it, defeated it by the sword, took possession of it and lived there, calling Lashem Dan, after Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Dan, according to their families, these cities with their villages. When they had finished distributing the land for inheritance according to, the, to its borders, the people of Israel gave an inheritance within their territory to Joshua, the son of Nun. According to Adonai's order, they gave him the city he had asked for, Timnat Serah, in the hills of Ephraim. So he built up the city and he lived in it. These are the inheritances which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and the leaders of the ancestral clans of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed for inheritance by lot in Shiloh before Adonai at the door of the tent of meeting. Thus they finished dividing up the land. Now, Simeon, I think, is a very interesting case. They were given territory within the territory of Judah. Now, while Judah would have been unhappy with the giving up of some of its territory to uh, Shimon, in reality, this was more of a slap in the face to Shimon. Surrounded completely by Judah put Simeon in a very dependent situation essentially what happened here with Shimon winding up in this position was the fulfillment of a curse that had been pronounced on Simeon by his own father Jacob turn your Bibles to Genesis 49 Genesis 49 
We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Genesis 49. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather gather yourselves together and I'm going to tell you what will happen to you in the Acharit Hayamim, the world to come, times to come. Assemble yourselves and listen, sons of Jacob. Pay attention to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my strength, the firstfruits of my manhood. Though superior in vigor and power, you are unstable as water. So your superiority will end because you climbed into your father's bed and defiled it. He climbed onto my concubine's couch. Shimon, Simeon, and Levi are brothers, related by weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let, me, let my honor not be connected with their people. For in their anger they killed men, and at their whim they named cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it's been fierce. Their fury, for it's been cruel. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. Here we see that Levi and Shimon were kind of lumped together and given essentially the same cursed future. They would be divided and scattered in the promised land. Yet the way that came about for those two tribes was quite different. Levi went on to become a very prestigious tribe, the priestly tribe. In fact, they were elevated in such a way that they weren't even considered to be a tribe of Israel anymore. Rather, they would be set apart for full-time service to God on Israel's behalf. Now, interestingly, the scattering prophecy for Levi was fulfilled in that they received 48 cities with a meager amount of pasture land attached to each of them that was immediately outside of those cities. These 48 cities were not close together or connected in such a way as to form a territory of Levi. Instead, they were dispersed all over Israel and all of the tribal territories. And while the cities were technically owned by the Levites, in another sense, they were really only permitted to live there and control that city at the consent of whatever the local tribe was. Now, Simeon, on the other hand, was not scattered in that same way. At first glance, there appears to be no scattering at all. But notice something about the description of the area they were given. There were no described borders. Rather, there's only a city list. Though they were all located in a somewhat concentrated area within Judah's territory, nonetheless, it was going to wind up being a very weak confederation of cities that caused Simeon to decrease in power and population. And so the tribe of Simeon went into a steady decline over the centuries. Eventually, there was no territory of Simeon anymore. In fact, we know that some of the clans of Simeon moved north and were absorbed into the various tribes of what in would in time be known as the Northern Kingdom. Other clans and individual families from Simeon threw their allegiance to Judah, a few more to Benjamin. 
So indeed, Jacob's curse on Simeon played out by them being ultimately divided up among all the other tribes of Israel for the most part. Now we're going to move a little quicker now. The third lot fell out for Zebulun and its territory was up north at the northern end of the uh, Jezreel Valley. And so Zebulun had some good fertile territory at its disposal. Notice how the description of Zebulun again involves boundary lines and not just a city list like it was for Simeon. The fourth lot was for Issachar. Issachar was described by both cities and boundary lines and it too was in the northern, more northern part of Canaan. The fifth lot described the territory of Asher. Now, notice verse 31 that is common to each of the pronouncements of each of the tribal territories that the territory was given according to the families as opposed to just given over to a tribal prince All right, and then him being allowed to divvy it out to families according to his own pleasure. The clans and families all belong to a tribe, but the tribal leader's not a king. Because a king, by definition, owns everything in the land over which he reigns. Therefore, the city or village given to a clan is owned by that clan, so to speak and is not but a temporary assignment that their tribal chief can invalidate at his will. At least that's how it was supposed to work. Now, Asher received some very important and valuable territory because it included Mediterranean, long stretch of Mediterranean sea coast, good ports. Right? And so it had an opportunity to have a big trade business. Of course, there was one little problem. Joshua had conquered none of this seacoast. So it was going to be all up to Asher to figure out how to take it from the people that currently had it. Now, Naphtali received the sixth lot um, and its territory was located between Asher. You see Naphtali here. All right. um, it was, went well north of the, to the northernmost boundary of what would have been at that time thought of as Canaan. Um, and on its southern border lay Zebulun and Issachar. And later on, this region would actually become to be called the Galil, or we know it better as the Galilee. Now, the tribe of Dan received that seventh and last lot, a very sure sign of its status in the eyes of Jehovah. As quickly as the territory is described, we're told in verse 47... This territory right down here, Dan, wasn't large enough for them. And this fits well with the earlier census that showed that Dan was actually among the largest of the tribes of Israel. Therefore, they looked for more territory and went far to the north of Canaan and conquered a place called Leshem. Right? And then they changed its name. It's named Dan. Now, Dan was in tough right away with his territorial allotment, and he knew it. Judah was forced to give up some of its westernmost towns, uh, and Ephraim some of its southern and westernmost towns, in order to form a territory for Dan. Neither of the two most prestigious tribes of Israel would have liked that very much. 
Worse, the major unspoken for area given to Dan was the central and southern Mediterranean seacoast, which was currently occupied by the fierce, formidable, technically advanced sea peoples, later called the Philistines. Much of the tribe of Dan elected to switch rather than fight. Right? And thus the interest of many of their clans is just, go, just packing up and moving north. Now the capturing of Lashem at first probably seemed like a great thing for Dan, but it turned out to be a, a slippery slope. Okay. Pagans surrounded them, and Dan quickly adopted their ways. The uh, northern city territory of Dan became a center of Israelite idolatry and calf worship was mixed in with their worship of the God of Israel. Now you can visit the area to this day, a beautiful, gorgeous spot by the way, and see the capital city of Dan. Um, But you can also see the paganism and that is truly a sad thing. Um, Thus we'll see mention of Dan in the Bible reduced to near nothing over time, except, frankly, when it was evoked as a curse. Um, And he really won't even re-enter Israel's wonderful prophetic future until quite late in the prophetic processes, and we're we're not there yet. Now, in verse 49, Joshua finally receives his reward of an inheritance of land within the tribal boundaries of Ephraim. Why did he get tribal territory in Ephraim when he'd been the head of all Israel for so many years? Well, because he was from the tribe of Ephraim. And he represented a powerful Ephraimite clan. And these tribal and clan links are deeply ingrained in Hebrew society. It's noteworthy that the section of Joshua concerning the dividing up of the promised land begins with one of the two scouts, Caleb, Caleb, that came back with a good report, remember that, about the land of Canaan, while Israel saw in the wilderness, Caleb got the very first inheritance of land within the formal promised land. And then this whole section about the dividing up of the land ends with that other scout, Joshua, getting his inheritance after all the other tribes had received theirs. Now, there's a couple of important principles being demonstrated in this arrangement. First and most important is that God completed what he said he'd do. And what he'd do is give Israel a land of its own. Second is that Joshua did all that the Lord had commanded him to do. Joshua was obedient. He was a model leader for Israel to follow in the future. The verses on this subject were written in such a way as to neither glorify the land given to Joshua as special that his, his inheritance or the best of the promised land nor to glorify the leader of Israel, Joshua. Rather, it was to draw attention to the holy God of Israel who keeps his word always. Always. You know, even though centuries may pass when it seems like God must have changed his mind. When earthly circumstances appear to have passed by any hope 
that what God said he'd do even makes any sense in the present reality. Although men have given up and fallen away from God, what he said would happen will happen. Now, a big amen is called for here, folks. That's a biggie. Right. But what else is called for among us is repentance and renewal within both the Jewish and the Christian communities to abandon doctrines that were long ago established under the premise that God has forgotten his promises. Or perhaps he's changed his mind. Put plainly, men have decided that in some ways God's either not faithful or able to do what he said he'd do. How much we read, particularly the Older Testament of the Bible, as Christians, and we just kind of shake our heads in disgust at those faithless, terrible Israelites who committed idolatry and who joined themselves with the world and who mixed a little of this and a whole lot of that to form a religion that wasn't very recognizable from a scriptural viewpoint and who abandoned the principles of God in favor of a new and more comfortable set of humanistic philosophies. Yet in most respects, have we done that much better? I've often said that the Judaism of Christ's era and the Christianity of our era look like two rails of a train track. They're separated, but they follow exactly the same path starting and ending at the same places. Where they began was purity. Where they ended up was polluted. Here's the thing. A large segment of our Jewish and Gentile brothers and sisters in the faith believe it's time to solve the Middle East and Israel problem by doing the one thing that God says must not be done. Give up the land that he set apart for his people. Land that we're sitting here in Joshua watching his people fight for. Two people who have no spiritual right to it. Many Jews and Christians see things as so radically changed from the time when the scriptures were written that certainly we would be ignorant bumpkins to still believe that its instructions and prophecies remain valid. And one of the reasons they believe this is that with all their hearts, they are certain that with the birth of Christ, the Lord completely threw the Bible away and wrote a new one. I'm encouraged that you who are listening to this either already understand that that no such thing took place like that, or at least reconsidering this long-held belief. Let's determine together today to do what we can to return to our faith roots as best we can with the direction and power of our Lord as our compass and sail. Even if it means that our friends and families might pull away from us a bit for not following the crowd. As I've said to many folks, if the Lord can throw away His promises in the past... What's to say he won't do it again in the future? But I'm not concerned about it. Because he didn't. And he won't. Now let's move on to Joshua chapter 20. 
And we're going to read that next week. Don't pull out your Bibles. But before we do, I want to talk about this for a few minutes. Here's the gist of this chapter. Now that the Lord has subdued, note that I said, did not say conquered. Okay. Now that the land has been subdued and the tribes have been allotted their territories, God instructs Joshua that now is the time for the tribes to set aside that network of cities that will become known as the Levitical cities and cities of refuge. And there were to be 48 cities set aside for the Levites to live in. And, you know, that wasn't to be a mixed population living there. It was to be for the Levites. However, no doubt, some foreigners and some other Israelites lived there if there was a specific purpose or reason for it. Now, out of these 48 cities, six were to be designated as sanctuary cities or cities of refuge. Three, if you'll notice, on the... um, west side of the Jordan, three on the east side. There was also a provision written in for three more cities of refuge to be established if Israel spread out and conquered more territory and thus needed the extra sites of refuge. Now, these cities, or rather the instruction for the the cities of refuge were laid out by Moses when he was still in charge when the Israelites were out in the wilderness. So the first few verses of Joshua 20 are essentially a repeat of Numbers 35, 9 through 29. It's quite helpful for us to understand what these cities of refuge are about and the rules that govern them. We don't have time today to go back and read Numbers 35, 9 through 29. We're just running too late but I'm going to go ahead and talk to you about it. Now, I am truly fascinated with this entire concept of the cities of refuge, sanctuary cities. Most scholars see this simply as an ancient way of handling a situation of accidental or unintentional manslaying before there was a strong Israelite central government and and a police force, if you would, to deal with it. So the Hebrews just adopted it. Now, whether there's an element of truth to that, I see something considerably deeper in this matter of the cities of refuge. I see a parallel with an obscure and mysterious place that the Bible calls Abraham's bosom. An often asked question in the church is, What happened to the righteous who died before the advent of Yeshua? What happened to them? Now, while I readily admit that I can't be 100% certain of the the answer, I believe the God patterns that have been established up to this point are our best guide. I believe it was much the same then as what happens today. When we die. But with a notable difference. The advent of Jesus. Now when a person dies today. We're told that their soul or their spirit is released from its corpse. And immediately goes to one of two places. Heaven or hell. So there's some kind of judgment. Perhaps better word maybe is determination. Made by the Lord that happens immediately upon our death. Now. Just like it was then. 
Before Christ died for our sins, the names for these two places in Hebrew literature loosely translate to Abraham's bosom and the place of torments. Okay. Abraham's bosom was for the righteous dead. The place of torments was for those who died in their sins without righteousness. Those who followed Torah, who sought proper atonement by means of the sacrificial system when they sinned, and who trusted the God of Israel went to Abraham's bosom, apparently some kind of holding place of the righteous dead, until something else occurred that would release them to go and be free in a permanent state of freedom and safety. But it seems that the, on, that, that, that the only safety that their souls would have would be in this Abraham's bosom. But it came at a price of being a captive there. Even if it was a pleasant place to be. Now there were a couple of caveats about this though. And in the name of time, I'm not going to go back everywhere in the Bible this is quoted. But I've covered it with you before so you can review it in prior lessons. There were two main categories of sins defined in the Torah. And we, again, loosely translate them as unintentional and intentional. Now that does not necessarily mean accidental and on purpose. Kind of like it sounds. Okay. It in some ways means lesser and greater. And more to the point, for our lesson today, it more means forgivable and unforgivable sins. The unforgivable sins were very few. And yet, another idiom used for this category of sins that we, that we run across often in the Bible is high-handed. A high-handed sin. The New Testament gives it a little bit different label. It calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin. That's not a subject we're going to debate today. Now here's the thing to understand. The sacrificial system only had the ability to atone for the unintentional, the lesser, the forgivable sins. Whichever one of those terms you like. Therefore, certain sins had no atonement available. One of these unforgivable, no sacrifice available, sins was murder. Unjustifiable unjustifiable killing of a human. If a person committed an unintentional and therefore forgivable sin, they could repent in their hearts, follow the Levitical procedures of a proper sacrifice, and they would be forgiven. If they died thereafter, then they were righteous in God's eyes. But if they committed an intentional and therefore unforgivable sin, there was no procedure for them to atone. And they died in an unrighteous state. The spirit, soul of the former went to Abraham's bosom, the latter to the place of torments. Now when Jesus died, we're told in Ephesians 4 that he went up. But you know what else it also says? Before he went up, he went down. Very interesting. And in the Gospel of Luke, we get this story about Abraham's bosom and the place of torments that centers around a character named Lazarus. 
And we're told that when Jesus went down, he presented the good news and set the captives free. What? What are we talking about here? See, because of his death, Jesus' death as the Son of God, as our Messiah, his blood atoned for the sin natures of those captives in Abraham's bosom. And his living water, that attribute of him cleansed them so thoroughly, they were now able to go and be in the very presence of God. Look at the parallels with laws concerning the city of refuge in Abraham's bosom. A person who commits a forgivable, unintentional sin, that's manslaughter, by the way, races to a place where he is held safe from being destroyed. However, there's a judge that determines if the killing that this person is responsible for is murder or not. If it's murder, which is an unforgivable sin, he's turned away from the city of refuge. He can't go in. If it's not, if it's a forgivable sin, he's let in. Atonement's made for him. He is forgiven, but he must remain a captive in that city indefinitely if he wants to be held safe. He raced to the city of refuge in the first place, you see, because the kinsman redeemer, the blood avenger of the person who died, who he had killed, had the legal right to take his life in retribution, even if the killing was accidental. But the Levitical city of refuge provided the only place that was off limits to the blood avenger. If the perpetrator ever ventured out of that city of refuge, he became fair game. Yet there is a strange, very strange, unexplained provision in all of this. Once, it says, the high priest of Israel dies, then the perpetrator can leave the city of refuge. And the blood avenger has no more legal right to kill him. It's over. In fact, if the blood avenger did go after him after the high priest died, it would be murder on his part. And he would have committed an unforgivable sin. Now what in the world has the high priest dying got to do with this whole thing? Why is the perpetrator of manslaughter let off the hook Because the high priest passed away. Well, there's been a lot of commentary among the Hebrew sages and rabbis about this subject. And while there's no universal agreement, there rarely is much of anything among rabbis. (laughs) The majority would agree that there is some mysterious, unspoken kind of atonement that happened as a result of that high priest's death, as illogical as all that might seem. Now compare that to Abraham's bosom and to Jesus. A man sins, a forgivable sin, and he races to the safety of Abraham's bosom. He's more or less a prisoner there until something or someone releases him to complete safety and full forgiveness where the legal blood avenger can't destroy him. It was later in the biblical times that the concept of Abraham's bosom was developed. In those days, they really didn't know 
with this release mechanism of the captives of Abraham's bosom was going to be. They didn't know. But we do. We know what that mechanism is. Jesus is called our high priest. Is he not? When our high priest died on the cross, one of the first things he did was go to Abraham's bosom and tell the captives that they were no longer prisoners. They were no longer captives in an intermediate place. They could go home to heaven, as it turns out, without fear of retribution. The cities of refuge, I believe, were a beautiful picture and physical demonstration of the spiritual principle of Abraham's bosom and Messiah and heaven. It shows that if we die in our unrighteousness, we're already judged. If we die in righteousness, we can go to a safe place, heaven, without fear of retribution. The evil one, think about this, has been given permission to possess those who sin. Except for those who sin and seek atonement in the Lord. But it took the death of our high priest to make the ultimate safe destination open to us. There was a kind of righteousness that these saints of old, pre-Yeshua, held that came from their trusting and their obedience to God's laws. But of itself, it was insufficient to allow them to stand before God in his heavenly realm. It took another kind of righteousness, a higher and humanly unachievable kind of righteousness, Yeshua's righteousness, for that to occur. The saints of old had to go through a sort of two-step process, if you would. They had to trust God and obey Torah, and then upon their death, they were quickly ushered to a safe place, away from Satan's clutches. But this place was not heaven, because something else had to happen for that to eventually become a possibility. The death of theirs and our spiritual high priest, the Messiah Yeshua. Today, it's a one-step process. It's only been available for about 2,000 years since the crucifixion of Christ. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Okay. Abraham's bosom is empty. Never again to be occupied. Because it's not needed anymore. But that place of torments, <laughs> that's a whole other matter. From there, there is no escape. There is no hope. Die in your unrighteousness. There's no middle ground. There's no second chance. No one can go to the place of torments and be redeemed from there, as the story of Lazarus points out. Okay. Since the coming of Christ, the only acceptable righteousness is the righteousness that he provides. It is his righteousness that we do not attain, we just wear it like a garment. It's a garment given as a gift from the merciful hand of the king. I think that's enough for you to chew on today.